All right, well, welcome, Bridge family. And if uh, you guys got your Bibles, open up to John 5. That was my Chris Holloman impression right there. And uh, if you guys could do that, that'd be amazing. And while you're turning there, um, guys, we need to celebrate. This is a historic day in the life of our church. And so, uh, hey, what's happening is as of... Now, wait, you got to hold your applause on this, okay? What's happening is as of today, we are officially one church in two locations uh, because... Right now, as you're sitting in this service, we're joining in with our Columbia campus who are having their second service. Supposedly, by the way, the first service at the Columbia campus was absolutely packed and uh, people just went out. So Bridge family, can you help me celebrate the launch of our Columbia campus? Yeah, man. Dude, that's it, man. Yes, Columbia. Yeah, 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 man. Hey, Columbia, (coughs) our hearts are with you. Uh, we are so honored uh, to be able to join in with, uh, with you as one church. And I also want to say this. Uh, we know just judging for what's going on online and, uh, and just, uh, just for, from what's happening around the church, we know that today there won't be dozens of people who visit Bridge Services for the first time. Uh, we know that today there's going to be hundreds of people who visit Bridge Services for the first time. And so Bridge family, both here and at our Columbia campus, can you help me show people who are visiting how honored we are that they're here? Can you do that right now? Yeah, man. Yeah, dude. Yeah, man. Sir, if you are visiting with us, we are unbelievably honored that you're here. My name's Josh. Um, I'm the senior pastor of our church, and we are just really honored. And today what's happening is we are in week four of a series that we're calling Grave Robber. And this series is going to culminate on Easter when uh, we hit the sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John that shows that he is a grave robber. Okay, so let me explain what's going on while we're calling this series Grave Robber. Um, The Gospel of John introduces us to Jesus through a series of seven signs. John doesn't call them miracles. He he calls them signs. Why does he do that? Here's why. Because a sign isn't the thing. A sign is the thing that points to the thing. A sign points away from itself to something significant. That's what we've been saying. Okay, now, I haven't done this yet in the series. Let me illustrate this real quick. Um, I have, to shoot you really straight, I've only seen God do a miracle one time in my life as a Christian. Uh, miracles are rare. That's why, that's why we call them miracles and not Wednesday, okay? They don't happen all the time. And, uh, but what happened was about five years ago, um, there was a woman in our church who had a mom who was not a Christian. And she lived down in, uh, in Florida, and she was attending uh, really an occult temple down there and was worshiping at that time what she called, um, she called it uh, the all spirit or the great love or, uh, or the, the, you know, the one true, you know, she had a bunch of different words for it. Um, but every time she would come into town, um, this lady who went to our church, she just kept inviting her mom uh, to come to a bridge worship gathering. And her mom over and over again just kept saying, no, 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 not my thing. And she had a really good reason. Here's what it was. She had been a clam farmer for 17 years in Florida and from uh, working around water for 17 years had sustained almost 100% hearing loss. She was deaf. And so uh, when her, uh, she came in town with her family, um, it was so bad that like her family at the dinner table, they, they tried like screaming into her ear, uh, but that, it, it still was not audible to her. So they reverted uh, to just putting sheets of paper on the dinner table and writing out conversations. And so she just kept saying, like, Matt, why am I going to come to a service? I can't hear anything. This is useless. Uh, but they eventually coaxed her into coming. Guilt is an amazing motivator. And, uh, and so she ended up being at a bridge service. And what she des- here's what she described happening. It was communion Sunday that Sunday. And, uh, and in the middle of our uh, church taking communion, she said that there was this intense desire that welled up within her to be able to hear what was being said. And so she prayed to the great spirit, um, that she might have the ability 
to hear and understand what was being said. So then she ended up sitting there for the rest of the service. She described late in my sermon, there was a moment where she was watching me preach, and all of a sudden there was an audible pop, a very loud pop that startled her. And as soon as she kind of calmed down from being startled, she uh, realized that she could hear completely clearly. And she sat in the service, and the first words that she had heard clearly in years were me describing Jesus Christ crucified for the sins of the world. And she heard that Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners and that anyone who calls on him by faith um, can have eternal life in his name. And right there in the third row of our old dirty warehouse we used to be in, uh, she gave her life to Christ in that service. Um, after this, that's right, man. That's it. Dude, that's it. If you're going to clap, you got to commit. You got to like go for it. That's it, man. And so... Um, so that happened right after the, uh, you, got, you guys got to remember, I've never met this woman. I don't know. She's in our service. I know nothing about her, her history. So after the service, she ran up to me and grabbed my arm and she said, Pastor Josh, Pastor Josh, I can hear. And I've never met this woman before in my life. And so I looked back at her and I just said, me too. You know, I, I didn't know what to say. Me too. And, uh, and, but then she ended up describing what had happened to her. <coughs> and, uh, and she told me her story and I was stunned. I'd never seen something like that before. And so um, I, I just said, man, can I meet with you tomorrow? And I'd honestly like to hear uh, more about what God did in your life. So the next day I got with her and she described, here's what she said happened. She said, as I was preaching, there was a voice inside of her uh, that revealed to her that all these years at her occult temple, she'd been worshiping the all spirit or the great light or the one love of the universe. And she said, while I was preaching and talking about Christ crucified, uh, something inside of her revealed to her. She said, I realized that's Jesus. Um, I, realized, uh, I realized that Jesus is the great spirit over the world. I realized that Jesus is the light of the world. I realized that Jesus is the one true love. And then listen, this is what she said. She said, I've got to go home and tell everybody. She said, I've got to go home and I've got to tell them all. I've got to go back to my temple and tell them that they don't know it, but what they're looking for is Jesus. By the way, this is a hilarious little tidbit. That day... Uh, the day that God healed her hearing, she, her daughter had a, a car accident and her car was totaled. And she didn't understand how all this works. So she said, man, maybe we can get the towing company to tow it to Pastor Josh and he can preach over the car and he, you know, that kind of thing. Like, hey, that's not how this works. Here's what I want to point out to you. Just think about this. Notice that she didn't say, I got to go home and tell everybody I got my hearing back. What she said was, I got to go home and tell everybody about the one who gave me my hearing back. I got to go home and tell him about Jesus. Now, do you know why? Because a sign isn't the thing. A sign is the thing that points to the thing. That's the purpose of every miracle that God has ever done to point away from itself to something that's true about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, this sign that we're hitting today is a, it's a little unique because this sign doesn't reveal who Jesus is as much as who Jesus helps. That's really important. Okay, so let's get right into it. John 5, pick up with me in verse 1. And we're going to do verses 1 through 11 together. John 5, 1 through 11. Here we go. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. Pause real quick. In general, listen, let me just, this is just personal opinion. I don't want to swim in a pool that's right next to the sheep gate. That's just how I roll. What I want you to see is this is not like a five-star pool. This is a nasty, gross, disgusting pool. And, and here's who gathers by it. Okay, listen. Sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. That means house of mercy, by the way, which has five roof colonnades. 
in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. By the way, I think that's an incredible description of the church. Uh, man, listen, I heard somebody say one time, they said, the church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. And I just want you to know, if you are here with us today, what, here's, what, here's what you're with. We are one big dysfunctional family. That's where we are, man. That's all we'll ever be. Uh, just a bunch of jacked up people loved by Jesus. And so blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now I want to pause. It's interesting John records for 38 years. Now some of you are hearing that and you're like, 38 years old, that's real old, okay? Let me just say, 38, no it's not, amen? Amen. No, it's not. Some of us, it's not. But here's why John points this out. Uh, In ancient Rome, the average life expectancy in Jesus' time was 28 years old, okay? Now, if there were an enormous amount of infant mortalities, zero to two years old, if you remove every infant that died from zero to two years old, the life expectancy in ancient Rome rises to an astronomical 40. What, the, what John is pointing out to us is that this man is almost at the end of his life and all he's ever known is paralysis. It's his identity. We're coming back to that. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed. Now, I'll be honest, if you're anything like me, when I hear that question, I'm like, well, that's a stupid question. Jesus, what do you want to be? That's like asking a bankrupt guy, do you want a million dollars? You know, it's uh, asking a starving person, do you, do you want a buffet? It's like, uh, it's like my wife, Jana, asking me, do you want to make out? It's like, man, that's a stupid question. I always want to make out, you know? <laughs> yes. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, <clears throat> I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going in, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. That's going to cause some problems. So Jews, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful (coughs) for you to take up your bed. I'm coming back to that. But, at, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, guys, there's so much going on here. Let me just say it, and let me kind of get into this. Um, if you have carefully read the Gospel of John, at the very end of the Gospel of John, there's a verse where John says, now many other miracles were performed by Jesus. But then he says, but these were written so that you might believe. In other words, John says, I carefully selected these exact seven miracles with an incredible purpose. Here's why. The miracles John records aren't just miracles, they're sermons. All of John's miracles are meant to preach a sermon. And here's what they do. Everything you see Jesus do in, in, uh, in the physical, in the miracle, is a sermon about what Jesus wants to do in the spiritual in your life, okay? Now, here's what this, this specific miracle is doing. Have you guys ever heard that old phrase? Uh, you, you heard this a lot in, in kind of the churches I grew up in. The old phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that phrase before? God helps those who help themselves. Can I just point something out to you? Um, in this story, it sure looks like he helped somebody who couldn't. And what's happening in this miracle is Jesus is saying, what I am doing to this man physically, I want to do to you spiritually. What he's saying is there is only one type of person that experiences the grace and power of Jesus. Here's who it is. Anyone who self-identifies as a spiritual invalid. In order for you to be qualified for God's grace in your life, 
Jesus is saying, you first got to self-identify as, listen, not just as somebody who will not walk according to my word. You've got to self-identify as somebody who can not walk according to my word. And the minute you do that, the minute you self-identify as a spiritual invalid, that is the minute that the grace and power of Jesus begins to work in your life. Now, let me just say this. I got a problem as a preacher. Here's my problem. My problem is the Bible says that the human heart is hardwired with something inside of us that keeps us from seeing ourselves as the Bible says that we actually are, okay? Uh, Here's what the Bible says of everybody in this room. The Bible says everybody in this room is hardwired to do this. When you sin, I become a judge. When I sin, I become a defense attorney. Every single person everywhere is hardwired to when I see you sin, I become a judge. When I see me sin, I become a defense attorney. Now, if you do not believe me, there is one, one location, one place uh, in your life that every single time you're there, this is on full display. When you sin, I become a judge. When, they, uh, when I sin, I become a defense attorney. Here's where it is. You can see this on full display anytime you walk into the 10 items or less checkout line of the grocery store. <laughs> Here's what I mean, okay? Uh, my wife, Jan, and I, we live about one mile from where I'm standing right now, which means we also live about one mile from our grocery store. So a lot of times what happens is uh, on my way home, Jan will text me and be like, hey, babe, um, I need these three things. Can you go get them? And then she always says, and can you take the girls? Because that makes it a lot easier to cook. And so I'll come home. I'll get the list. I'll take the girls. And uh, basically, here's my point. I'm never going in for the full grocery run. I go in to get a few things. So I always check out at the 10 items or less checkout line. Now, here's what I've noticed. I do the same exact thing in the first moment I get in that line every single time. You know what it is? Here's what it is. First thing I do is I look at the guy's cart in front of me and I start counting. It's the first thing I do. I just I get in the line, look at his cart, and uh, here's what I found. Nine times out of 10, I look at his cart and I start counting. I go, okay, well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, okay? And then I'm like, oh, no way. There's no way. No way this could be the case. And so I'll count again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And the second, when I count to 12 the second time, an indomitable rage erupts within me. Uh, and I, you know, I start doing, I'll, I'll look really uncomfortable. I'll start like eyeballing his cart, like, you know, just sort of that kind of thing. Uh, real passive aggressive. Sometimes I'll find myself like whispering things under my breath just loud enough for him to hear like, hey, Eliana, do you think the problem is that he can't read or that he can't count? What do you think the problem is? Which one? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, just whatever I got to do, you know, to, to get, so that's kind of, now here's what I've also noticed. Okay. Now you all do the exact same thing. Don't, don't pretend. So here's what I've also noticed. Whenever I go to the 10 times or less checkout line and I am the one with 12 items, I feel totally fine in that line. Uh, what I tend to do is I'll look down at my cart at my 12 items. And I'll go, oh yeah, there's 12 items, but I got Coke and Diet Coke, same family that only counts as one, you know, that kind of thing. But what I, what I want you to notice is that when you sin, I become a judge. When I sin, I become a defense attorney. Now here's the problem with that. What that does is that keeps you from seeing yourself as God sees you outside of his power, as somebody who is completely unable to do anything on your own power for him. That's what the Bible says you're like. Now, um, have you guys ever heard of, there's an old quote from Sigmund Freud, the great psychologist. He was not a a believer. And what he, he said, this is what he said about Christianity. He said that Christianity is a crutch for weak people, okay? Christianity is a crutch for weak people. Um, Can I tell you something about that quote? In some ways, I love that quote. In some ways, I hate that quote. Mostly, I hate it, okay? Let me explain why. I hate it 
for the exact opposite reason uh, why you think I hate it. Now, let me, let me show you this. Um, some of you guys have seen this diagram. I'm, diagram I'm getting ready to toss up on the screen here. Uh, what I'm getting ready to show you, it's a, it's a little, if you've ever gone through like evangelism training, there's a little, the, the napkin illustration where you can draw how the gospel works, right? And you may have actually drawn this before. Uh, and it's, it's this little illustration, right? And you draw, man, there's this side and this side. You're on this side. God's on this side. We're separated from him by our sin. And then what God did is he provided the cross to bridge the gap. That's where, by the way, that's where we got the name of our church, to bridge the gap um, between a holy God and sinful man. And then uh, what we always say is that, man, all you have to do to be saved is you've got to walk across the cross to God, okay? Now, first, before I say anything else, let me just say I love this illustration. From a human perspective, this is an amazing illustration of what it looks like for us to be united to God through faith. And, and I'm for anything that helps us share the gospel with people who need Jesus. I'm pro that, all that, okay? But let me just say this. From, a divine, from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective, this looks a whole lot different. Let me show you what I mean, okay? You guys remember what the Bible says in Ephesians about us? Um, the book of Ephesians says, For you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. So, man, actually, what shouldn't be over here is a person ready to walk. What should be over here is a gravestone. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then, you know, what the Bible says is that it, it's not... We didn't walk across the cross to God on our own power. From a human perspective, yes. From God's perspective, no. What the Bible says is, man, it's not that we came to him. The Bible says, for it is not that we love God, but that he loved us. And that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. And so actually, from God's perspective, the arrow doesn't go that way. The arrow goes that way. And then you guys know what the Bible says. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God. Do you realize this? that I would never have even believed in God if the Holy Spirit had not done a work in my heart. And so God, it's almost like he did spiritual CPR and gave me spiritual life to call on his name. And then, and then, what the Bible says is that for the rest of the Christian life, it's not that me all on my own, that I just walk towards God in my own power. What the Bible says is, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. That anytime I do anything for the fame of Christ and a good work, uh, it's not me who did it, it's Christ who lives in me. So it's him working in me. Guys, listen to me. Christianity is not a crutch for people who limp, it's a stretcher for people who are dead. That's what the Bible teaches about us and who we are. And listen, that is the best news you've ever heard. Do you know why that's the best news you've ever heard? Because if that's true, it means there is only, listen, there is only one thing that you need if you want God in your life. One thing. Um, some of you may be here today and you're visiting with us. And right now, there may be something in you where like, you feel really inadequate. And what you're saying in your seat right now is you may be going, yeah, Josh, but I haven't lived a really good life. That's okay. You don't need that. You may be going, yeah, Josh, but I haven't raised a really good family. I've messed everything up. I got good news. You don't need that. And you may be going, yeah, yeah, Josh, but I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't have any Bible knowledge. Listen, I've been preaching these people for nine years, neither today. Okay? <laughs> well, you may be going, man, Josh, I don't have any, I have no spiritual background. I haven't grown up in church. I don't know anything about the Christian life. That's okay. You don't need that. You see, if, if what John 5 says is true, there's only one thing you need if you want God in your life. If you want God, all you need is need. That's all you need. If you can look at yourself and say, and apart from him, I'll never do anything good, and I can never be anything good. 
if you can look at yourself and have need, pure neediness before God, then you can have him. Now listen, when you do that, when you self-identify as a spiritual invalid, God comes into your life and he begins to make everything new, especially he begins to change your identity. This is of, of utmost importance. Did you guys notice in this passage, I love this, did you notice that as soon as Jesus tells this man to take up his mat and walk, that it starts this little feud between the guy and the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees say to the man, hey, listen, they say, it is not lawful for you to take up your mat. Do you know what's going on here? Okay. Uh, you Bible scholars will love this. Um, what happened was in what's called the intertestamental period, the period in between the Old Testament was finished being written and when the New Testament began to be written, uh, there was a group called the Pharisees. And what they did is they took all of the commands in the Old Testament and they made up a bunch of rules about how to keep those rules. Those guys, they sound really fun at parties, don't they? That's what they did. <clears throat> they made a bunch of rules about how to keep all the rules. So here, let me give you one example. So they took the one rule, the one rule that God gave to keep the Sabbath day, honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy. So here's what they did. God gave us this one rule, this awesome rule because he loves us. God said, I love you so much. One day a week, I just want you to chill out. Take a nap. Take two naps. Binge watch Netflix guilt-free. Whatever you want to, just take one day and set it apart as holy unto me. And here's what the Pharisees did. They took that one rule and they developed a 39-page long checklist about how to keep that one rule, okay? And it got really silly. I'll give you one example. Um, so uh, one of their rules was you couldn't travel more than a couple miles on a Sabbath day because that would be work. So they made that rule. But then they realized, oh, wait, but some people are on boats on a Sabbath day and they can be resting while the boat is going and they'll travel more than a few miles. So they added this addendum. They said, well... You can't travel more than a few miles, except if you're traveling, quote, over water. So to this day, I kid you not, if you travel to Jerusalem today on a Saturday, and you're there on a Saturday, every devout Jewish person you see driving around the city will have a bottle of water underneath the driver's seat so that they are traveling over water. That's a thing, okay? Uh, I'll give you another one. <coughs> Years ago, I had a pastor friend who traveled to Jerusalem, was checking into his, I love this story, uh, was checking into his hotel on a Saturday, there's Jewish Sabbath, and he was carrying his luggage up to his room, got on an elevator, and he noticed the elevator was stopping at every single floor. And he was like, man, ain't, ain't nobody got time for this, you know? And, and he turned around to the other Jewish people in the elevator, and he said, man, what's wrong with this elevator? And they said, oh, this is a Shabbat elevator. And he said, Shabbat, is that Hebrew for slow? You know, what, what's that mean? And they said, no, Shabbat means Sabbath. Uh, and they went on to explain one of their Sabbath rules is on the Sabbath, you can't start a fire because that'd be work. And the modern day application of that is modern day Jews, they don't do anything that starts an electric current flowing because that would be like starting a fire, which would be work. And so they explained, we can't have an elevator that forces us to press a button to activate. So the Shabbat elevator stops at every floor. So he asked the logical question. He said, man, is there a Gentile elevator somewhere around here? You know, and, they, they, and then they said, actually, there is. They said, just get out the elevator, turn right, and you'll find the Gentile elevator just down the hall. So he did that and walked his way into the Gentile elevator, turned around, and they'd all followed him into the Gentile elevator. And he looked at them, and they, they looked at him, and they said, can you press number seven for us, you know? Now, first of all, that's awesome. That's a great story right there. 
Okay, but essentially it was like, hey, we won't sin, but we'd love for you to, you know, that kind of thing. Now, that's what's going on in this passage. If you're curious, that's what's happening in this passage. One of those intertestamental Pharisee, Pharisee rules about the Sabbath was, listen, one of the rules was you could not transfer an object from one domain to another. So for this man to take his mat from the colonnade to his house would have been transferring an object from one domain to another, and it starts this war. Here's the war. Whose word am I going to believe for my life? Am I going to believe the Pharisees and what they say about me? Or am I going to believe Jesus and what Jesus says about me? And here's what you need to know. When God begins to work in your life, you're going to have that exact same war. You're going to have to make a decision. Whose word do I believe for my life? Do I believe what Jesus says about me? Or do I believe what these people say about me? Here's what I love. What this man does is so simple. It's so simple. He just points at Jesus and he says, I'm going to listen to the guy that healed me. That's all I need to know. That guy healed me. I'm going to listen to him. Now listen, here's what he's driving at. Only Jesus, <coughs> listen, only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. Only Jesus. Now listen, here's why I say this, okay? In Christianity, your activity does not lead to your identity. In Christianity, it's your identity that leads to your activity. Let me me rephrase that. In Christianity, doing a bunch of good things does not make you a child of God. What happens is God adopts us as his child, and then we start to pick up family habits. Now, what the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that this world is lorded over by a father of lies. And the number one lie that the devil wants you to believe is that you are your activity. That's the number one lie the devil wants you to believe. You are your activity. Now, here's why I say this, okay? Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. So I just need to say this. Let me say it really bluntly to you. Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. What that means is that you are not your addiction. You may have stood up in a thousand AA meetings and said, hi, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. Well, listen, you may struggle with alcoholism, but you are not an alcoholic as your deepest identity. Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. Listen, you're not your past. It doesn't matter how bad it haunts you and how many dreams it wakes you up with. You are not your past. You are not your sin. It doesn't matter how deep the transgression was. Listen, you are not your orientation. And I know you have a thousand people in your life in your, in your ear telling you what you should and shouldn't do with your orientation, but you're not. You're not your orientation. You are not your affair. You are not your divorce. You are not your rape. And you right now may look at me and go, well, yeah, Josh, but that's the biggest thing that ever happened in my life. No, it isn't. If not, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, Jesus dying on the cross is the biggest thing that ever happened in your life. That is the greatest thing that ever happened in your life. You are not your obesity. You are not your bankruptcy. You are not your abortion. But listen, also, guys, listen, you are also not your successes. You guys understand you're not your 401k. You guys understand you're not your position on the corporate ladder. You are not your Instagram likes. You are not your job title and you are not your promotion. You are who Jesus says you are. Nothing more and nothing less. Now listen, because almost everybody in this room, you've spent your entire life, you've had so many lies spoken over your soul about who you are and who you are not. And you've believed so many of those lies that here's what I did. It took me a long time, so I want credit for this, okay? Here's what I did this week. I spent about three hours and I went through the entire Bible. And all I wanted to do is pull everything out of the Bible about what the Bible says about who you are. Here's what I want you to do, two things. Okay, one, as I preach these things over you, 
I don't want you to, I want you to stop hearing the voice of Josh Howerton, and I don't want you to start hearing the voice of Jesus Christ as I read these things over you, okay? But number two, this is really long. So just at the spot where you think I'm done, I'm about halfway done, okay? So here we go. Here we go. Here's who the Bible says you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a child of the living God. You are Jesus Christ's friend. You are chosen and appointed by Christ to bear his fruit. You are a slave of righteousness. You are a temple, and that has nothing to do with what you look like in a bathing suit, amen? You are a dwelling place of the living God. You are a new creation. You have been reconciled to God, and you are a called minister of reconciliation. You are a saint. Do you hear that, Catholics? You're a saint. So you can take off that necklace of that old dead guy. You can get a necklace with your own face on it. Call your old uh, you know, Catholic grandma, and you say, hey, grandma, from now on, is Saint Toby. Because Ephesians 1.1 says, I'm a saint. You are holy and dearly loved. You are a member of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. You are an alien and a stranger to this world in which you temporarily live. You are an enemy of the devil. You are born of God and the devil cannot touch you. You are not the great I am, but by the grace of God, you are what you are. You are justified. And when I say justified, what that means is that when God looks at you, it's just as if you'd never sinned. But it's even more than that. It's even better than that. What it means, you're justified. What that means is when God looks at you, it's just as if you'd always obeyed. You are justified, completely forgiven, and made righteous. You are free forever from condemnation. Do you guys know what condemned means? Condemned is a builder's term that means unfit for use. That's what the devil wants you to believe about yourself unfit for use. But the Bible says, the Bible says that you are free forever from condemnation. You have received the spirit of God into your life that you might know the things freely given to you by God. You are valuable and you should be treated as valuable. You are sealed by God in Christ. You are given the Holy Spirit as a pledge guaranteeing your inheritance to come. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit that you may approach God with boldness. Do you know why? Because he's our dad and dads love it when their kids come running to him. You have been rescued from the domain of Satan's rule and you have been transferred from the kingdom of, transferred to the kingdom of Christ. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You should know that full well. You died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. That your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You have been given a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. You have been saved and set apart according to God's doing. And because you have been sanctified, you are one with your sanctifier. He is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. You have the right to come boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy and grace in your time of need. You have been given exceedingly great and precious promises by God, by which you are a partaker of his divine nature, and you are loved by God. Amen? Amen. That's, that is who you are. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says about who you are. The only thing that matters is who Jesus says you, who you are. And listen, when you understand, once you understand who you are, and once you understand whose you are, that starts to change everything in your life. It changes everything. You start to see some of the same things, but they take up a different purpose. Here's what I mean, okay? Why is it, this has always been interesting to me. <coughs> Why did Jesus tell this man to take up his bed? This is the only recorded miracle in the entire Gospels where Jesus tells anyone to take anything with him. And I want you to think about this. Think about this. We know this man's been an invalid for 38 years, and we know he's so paralyzed, he can't even get into a pool to bathe himself. Do you know what that means? This guy's been lying on this mat for 38 years without bathing. 
This thing is gross. It's disgusting. It stinks. It's ugly. And Jesus says, but I want you to take it with you. Do you know why? Because the thing that used to be your identity isn't your identity anymore. Now it's your testimony. And everywhere you go, I want you to be able to point at this map, and you'll be able to tell everyone that you meet, this is what I used to be, but now, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this man's identity, what used to be his identity, became his testimony. And what you need to know is that once you understand who you are and whose you are, all of the things that have plagued you, that you have made your identity, they become your testimony. Listen, in Christ, your pain can become a platform for the glory of God. That can happen in your life, okay? Now listen, uh, there's a really, I saw this illustrated really powerfully. Uh, When I was growing up, and God first called me to be a preacher, and I didn't, I didn't know how to preach. So what I did is I just started watching TBN, which was terrible training. I just started watching TBN, TV preachers. And uh, one of the guys that was on TV back then, some of you guys may know this name. There was a guy named David Ring that was on TV preaching in the 90s, David Ring. Um, some of you guys know who David Ring is, but you don't know that you know who David Ring is. So let me show you a picture. This is David Ring. <coughs> some of you guys may remember this face. Big, goofy smile, David Ring. And here's David Ring's story. David Ring was born uh, a stillborn baby. Um, he was, uh, David Ring was born dead, and he was dead for the first 18 minutes of his life. For 18 minutes, um, his heart did not pump, his lungs did not breathe, uh, his voice did not cry, and his, uh, his brain did not function for 18 minutes. And then miracle of miracles, God reached down and touched this infant and raised him, and uh, he came to life. He was revived. And from that time on, for the next 11 years of his life, um, David Ring's parents, they taught him that God had saved him for a great purpose and that his life mattered and that God would use him for his glory. But here was the problem. Those 18 minutes of not breathing, uh, the oxygen depletion left David Ring with a very severe disability, cerebral palsy, accompanied by a horrible speech impediment. He could barely even say his name. So for 11 years... David's, David Ring's parents, um, they gospeled him, and they taught him that, man, God did save you for a purpose. You are disabled, but your life does matter, and God has a plan for your life that matters. Um, but when David Ring was 11 years old, his dad died of cancer, and then his mom became everything to him, and three years later, his mom died of the exact same cancer that took his dad when he was 11. Um, so when David Ring was 14, he made a decision that the only way all this could happen is because God hated him. There's no way that I could have this disability and two dead parents unless God hated me. And so he rejected God. And for years, for the next few years of his life, four years, um, he on and off tried to commit suicide multiple times, um, unsuccessfully because of his disability. And he he was full of bitterness and rage and anger and hatred of God. Um, But when David Ring was 18 years old, um, he was at college, and he had a roommate that showed some care for him. And this roommate invited him to a gospel meeting. And David Ring hated God, but he said, man, but I need a friend. And so he went to this meeting, and he said that at that meeting, he had a powerful experience of God's love for him. And his eyes were open to belief. And, uh, and while he was there, everything changed for him. Um, after that moment, he stopped trying to commit suicide because he said, uh, now, I had, uh, now I didn't want, his way said, he said, now I didn't want to die anymore because I had something worth living for. And of everything, (laughs) of everything that David Ring could have become, he ended up becoming a world-renowned preacher. 
this guy with cerebral palsy and a severe speech impediment became a preacher that preached in over 6,000 churches and saw tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people swept up into the grace of Christ. If you have ever heard, his sermons are so unique because uh, he speaks so slowly and with such garbled words. But it's very powerful because the Lord anointed him. If you've ever seen a David Ring sermon, every single sermon ends with the same sentence. He looks out of the church, and every time he says, we throw away broken things, but God uses broken things. My name is David Ring, and I have cerebral palsy. What's your excuse? And listen, what happened to him was the thing that used to be his identity became his testimony and his pain became a platform for the glory of God. And today, in the hearing of the preached word of Jesus, what I want you to know is that your disability, your spiritual disability, your emotional disability, uh, your physical, your sin disability, um, that is not your identity anymore in Christ. That's your testimony. And your pain can become a platform for the glory of God. Um, You might be here. And you've spent your life just as paralyzed as this man in John 5. You are paralyzed by fear. Or you're paralyzed by failure. Or you have spent your whole life paralyzed by the dad that walked out on you when you were 10. Or by the abortion you got when you were 17. And today what I want you to hear is the powerful voice of Jesus staring straight into your eyes saying, Get up. Take up your bed. And walk. That's not who you are anymore. That's your testimony for me. God can do that in your life by faith. What I want to do right now is I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would move your heart in that direction. So man, could you, would you pray with me? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I want to pray for you. Father, (coughs) would you please take the words of this poor, lisping, stammering tongue and would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, do what I cannot do and preach the sermon that needs to happen inside of the chests of men and women in this room. And so, Holy Spirit, would you, would you lay your hand, lay your finger on all the places of brokenness and paralysis and hurt inside of our lives? And Father, would you begin to do your redeeming work that your power is made perfect in weakness? And would you give us the ability to believe that weakness is an advantage because dependence is our goal? And Father, I pray that everything in our life where we are weak, that we would lean into you and trust that you are strong. And that all the places of our weakness will become the places of greatest power in our lives. Why? Because you are a God who redeems what is broken. And so, God, would you do that right now? Um, I pray that if there is anybody here who has never called out to you in faith and given their lives to you, that even right now while I'm preaching, that they would be, uh, their hearts, they would be giving their heart to you in an act of faith. And that today, while I'm praying, you would be adopting them as a son or a daughter of the living God. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in the name of your crucified and risen son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.